Well, good morning. Um, so we're going to be looking at the parable of the seed and the sower. Uh, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 13, and we're mainly going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And after verses 1 through 9, verses 18 through 23, um, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked a little bit more at verses 10 through 17, where Jesus more teaches about why he was teaching the crowds in parables and what the reason for that was. And we'll be reviewing a couple of points from that. But I just want to put back into your mind how incredibly important these parables are, how incredibly important this method of teaching is, because of how it not only helps to reveal the nature of God's kingdom, but reveal our condition as well, and what kind of condition we need to be in to see the kingdom, to value the kingdom, to value Jesus as the king of his kingdom. And these parables help us ultimately to learn to become students of our own hearts. And we're going to see that this, this morning. So I want to start with reading again verses 1 through 9. And we'll just review here uh, what Michael read just a few minutes ago. Uh, the parable itself of the seed and the sower and the circumstances here surrounding it. So Matthew chapter 13, and I'll be reading again verses 1 through 9. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds of the air, uh, the birds came and ate, it up, ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So just try to imagine this setting really quick and try to maybe put yourself in the audience of this teaching. So you look back at verse 1 and 2. Jesus had been spending some time in someone's house and he was sitting by the sea. And you imagine if you were somebody who heard incredible things about Jesus, you know, maybe you've seen some incredible things already. You've either heard of or seen Jesus performing miracles and healing the sick. Maybe you've heard that he is an incredible teacher, that people have been astonished at his teaching. And so you go to Jesus and you're in this large crowd. And then there's this moment where everything's just kind of coming together. Jesus goes out on this boat and you imagine him leaving the shoreline slowly. He's sitting down on this boat and where he's sitting, the, the water would amplify the sound of his voice. Everything quiets down, and you're expecting something that's going to be exhilarating and life-changing, and he teaches something that takes about one minute to talk through, and it's this incredibly mundane, seemingly absolutely pointless story about some random person who's not even given a name just throwing seed out on different soils and that's it. No, no profound connection, no grandiose connection from his teaching to the law of Moses and fulfilling the law of Moses. Nothing that's profoundly personal that's mentioned. 
So I want to think really quick about a couple of things with the parable itself and parables in general again, both by review and then looking at some things with verse 9. I think it's helpful to understand what a parable even is by definition. And so parables really by definition are a lot like just a general illustration. So like in teaching, you know, there might be something complicated or maybe a little difficult and using a relatable illustration helps to make it easier to grasp and digest and approach. And that's really what a parable is. So parables illustrate something profound and very difficult to grasp. And that's illustrated by comparing this thing and relating it to more simple things. So you remember in the reading, verse 11, and from a couple weeks ago, Jesus tells the disciples privately. So verse 10 is no longer a part of this public teaching. I imagine the boat starts going back into shore and everybody's waiting for him to say more. He doesn't say anything more. He gets back to shore and his disciples then approach him privately and he tells them, this is about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is obviously something we don't see with our eyes. It's not something we tangibly experience as we experience other things. And so it is a very profound thing. The kingdom of heaven can be very difficult to grasp. And so Jesus being a master of the kingdom, Jesus understands how to relate this difficult thing to also very simple things. That tends to be something that uh, a person who's very skilled in a certain craft or a certain um, educational teaching, what they're able to do with their teaching. So, for instance, a lot of times if somebody can both teach a college-level course and then explain those same concepts to a group of like eight-year-olds or seven-year-olds, that person tends to be somebody who's a master of their craft or whatever it is they're teaching, to both be able to challenge the intellectual and experienced, but also to gently help and lead the people who can't grasp these more heavy concepts. So Jesus is showing a mastery of his kingdom in teaching this way. And I want you to remember too, this was the main point from two weeks ago, that there are many things in general, not just in the Bible, just in general, There are many things that only have their value because of their association with a person and the value that people place on that association. So I use an example of going to a modern art museum in Minnesota when I was in college. There's this giant canvas and it was like this main display piece and it was just a canvas with a single tear going down the center. And to me it was like a big joke and I thought it was pretty frustrating actually that that would be displayed as some heralded work when, I mean, literally anybody could do that. You know, it didn't even have paint on it. But because of the association with the person who created it, well, it has value. The association with the setting in that museum gives it value, right? So there's many things like that. And so parables are these very simple, easy to overlook methods of teaching. But really the disciples were people who valued Jesus in the right way. Therefore, they valued his teaching and they valued gaining understanding of his teaching. And so he would freely give it to them and explain things to them. Before we talk about it more specifically, I do want to think about verse 9 and his statement. He calls out at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which, to my understanding, Jesus only says that when his teaching has certain qualities that I'm going to bring up here. 
One here is Jesus gives no hint that there's any relation in this story to his kingdom at all. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like, which he does later in chapter 13 with other parables after this. So there's no profound connection to his kingdom even hinted at. So how would you know that this has that kind of connection? How would you know that? It's because Jesus is Jesus, and Jesus is faithful and consistent. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus says, every interaction he has, it doesn't matter what it looks like, everything Jesus does and teaches teaches is about the kingdom. Everything. Everything Jesus teaches is not only about the kingdom, but it's to give people an understanding of how to enter the kingdom and understand the kingdom. Everything. So when Jesus teaches about a man going out and throwing seed everywhere, there can be, just by nature of Jesus being who he is, there can be an understanding that Jesus is teaching something extremely profound about his kingdom just by nature of who he is. Because Jesus is not inconsistent. He's not deviating his focus or his purpose. He's single-minded. I think another important thing is understanding the importance, actually, of how simple and mundane this story is. In my Bible here, it's on the same opening. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 38, I think Jesus addresses a really common problem that just everybody tends to have, and I mean me and literally everybody, because Jesus also, in his interactions, just addresses very common problems that people have. So there were some scribes and Pharisees who said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. This is obviously something that we can look at and sneer at very easily. But I do think there's a problem in constantly seeking value through what is exhilarating. Or this changes my life dramatically right now. And if this sermon or this Bible study doesn't give me some dramatic application to make right now and my life is forever changed and I feel this big impact, then it has no value. Just exposure to this teaching was valuable. Hearing the teaching with nothing profound, nothing exhilarating, nothing personal even said, Jesus said it and they heard it and that's good. In any relationship, any true close relationship, it's not just this roller coaster ride of exhilaration and emotion every day, right? And so we need to not make some great exception with God where God always has to be exhilarating me for me to serve him. That's just not how it was with Jesus. And Jesus would even deliberately teach where if people were seeking something that was going to feel constantly dramatic, he would deliberately act and teach in a way to turn those people away because that's just not the nature of the kingdom. We're going to see that more with his explanation of the parable. But the parables challenge us to change our sense of value and impact, to see more glory in the mundane, to see more power in the simple and the common. Oftentimes we miss the power of Jesus' kingdom because we're looking for power and associating it in the wrong ways, to the wrong places. I think another thing is there's no personal pronouns, which pronouns is like you and your. 
So the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a lot of those personal pronouns, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If you are angry with your brother. And so it's very personal and therefore it's very convicting. It's like, oh man, he's talking to me. And when Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 sent out his disciples to go and preach the gospel and heal the sick everywhere, it was very personal. And it's very easy to read Jesus' lessons to the disciples there and to just feel very convicted, like, wow, he's saying things that are, these are really challenging, this is really powerful. Wow, I need to get up and and change and, and do something. There's no personal pronouns here. It's like, who are you talking to? Who are you even talking about? And what we're going to see at the end of the lesson with the good soil, a good heart will place itself into Jesus' teaching even when there's nothing personal that indicates that you ought to do that. This parable is ultimately an invitation to the humble-hearted to see themselves and to see into their own heart and the condition of their heart. What this does is it really tests our commitment to learning and seeking to understand. Ultimately, we talked about this two weeks ago, where Jesus places the greatest burden of emphasis is not on the teacher teaching everything flawlessly, but on the hearer being committed to learning. Something that's really helped me is there's an older brother who I've heard, this is a very encouraging older brother who preaches, and I've heard him reflect on when he grew up, he was a part of a congregation where the person who was preaching full-time at that church was very monotoned, very dry, didn't like wave himself around or do anything exciting. And so it was very easy to like doze off and be like, come on, like give me something to keep my attention. Just the reality, it was a very boring person, right? The way he talked was boring. The way he, the way he taught was just very level toned, not very exciting. But what this older brother reflected on is the way that he thought about that is he decided that he needed to be even more invested then to really reading what this brother who was preaching, reading the scriptures that he was bringing up and teaching on, really listening even more carefully to what he's saying and not depending on his presentation to get something out of the sermon. And so he determined to work harder to get things out of the sermon because of how difficult it was to listen. That ultimately is the principle that Jesus is conveying here. What he's saying is, you're going to need to work hard to get something out of this. And if you're going to be lazy with this teaching, if you're not going to continue to commit to meditating on these things, you get nothing from it. And that ultimately is the issue of the the Pharisees and the scribes, is they might stop by from time to time, but ultimately they were not truly or genuinely committed to actually learning or actually seeking an understanding of what Jesus was teaching because of how challenging it was. So we need to learn to be committed to understanding. And we need to learn to see the value of hearing more diligently beyond just the time and the setting of a lesson or a study. That's really where Jesus places the ultimate glory. So let's look more specifically at the, the soils. We're just going to look one by one, both at what's said about the seed and the soil, and then how Jesus explains and gives that meaning. So we'll be kind of turning back and forth from verses 4 through 8, and then verses 19 through 23. And we're going to ask 
some very simple questions with each soil. What happened to the seed and then what does it mean? And just take some lessons from that. So the seed sown beside the road, what, what happened to it? Well, in verse 4, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate, it, ate them up. So the issue is it had no soil and so it had no ground to plant any roots at all in and so it was left completely exposed and birds eat seeds and so as a result of it being exposed was eaten by birds. Well, let's look at verse 19 and let's look at what Jesus says that means. Look at verse 18 to kind of get into his explanation. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So here Jesus reveals that the soils are different conditions of heart. Everybody is going to fit into one of these four conditions that Jesus teaches about here. And ultimately, this is about how somebody hears the word of God and how it affects their hearts or how they allow it to affect their heart. So the sower sowing the seed, as we even sung, um, some hear the word of the kingdom, but why don't they understand? The devil takes away what was sown. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I want to convey to you and just put into your mind that this idea of understanding the word is a theme in Jesus both explaining the parables and then explaining his reason for teaching in parables, but then the explanation itself. If you look at verse 13, if you look at just at the end of the verse, when he's saying like, well, why does he teach in parables? He says, nor do they understand. Look at verse 15, the second to last phrase, the, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. And then the soil we just looked at, they don't understand it. But then verse 23, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it. So what Jesus is ultimately getting to is, what does it look like to actually receive the word to understand it? And if you were to look up the Greek word for understand, it has a really interesting and really simple def definition. It's basically just connecting dots. Like there are these two things and to understand is to just put them together and make sense of these two things by joining them together. It's literally just connecting the dots. And so just like with the parable, the disciples would need to connect some dots together and that's ultimately what he's teaching is who can properly connect the dots with the teaching of the kingdom. So let, let's think more about this and just think about a couple of brief lessons. I think one thing that's really important to understand on why people generally wouldn't believe the message of the kingdom, it's not just a matter of intellect and intelligence. Maybe you've asked this question or said these things or experienced this, but I know I've experienced and thought from time to time too, you know, this person's so smart. Ah, like why, why can't they get it? It's such a shame. They're, they're, they're so smart in so many ways and, you know, they just are so good at so many things. But I think what Jesus ends up revealing here is understanding the kingdom and its message is not so much a matter just of intellect and intellectual prowess, but it really is a matter of where a person's heart is, which 
we can't see ourselves with our visible eye. And so although, yeah, we need to use our minds and use our intelligence, ultimately where our heart is in relation to Jesus is the most important thing. And when he talks about, in verse 19, the word of the kingdom, I think that's a very deliberate way of describing his message. The word of the kingdom. Think about the idea of a kingdom as like a government or a decree made by a governing authority. The judgments of the king. And I think, again, there's a deliberateness to Jesus saying they're hearing the judgments of the king himself. Those judgments... They require a humble heart that sees what Jesus is saying means I need to be wrong and change. That my way of thinking is wrong. My way of living is wrong. My way of treating people is wrong. And so Jesus' judgments require the humility to acknowledge truth outside of what I prefer, truth outside of what I may desire, truth outside of what's easy for me. And so there's a trust, there's a faith required in Jesus' judgments. That just like the parable itself, putting value on his teaching, even if it's simple and mundane because of who he is, that whatever Jesus says, if it's his judgment, it's good. If it's his decree, if it's his command, then it is good as it's stated. And I don't need to try to work around it or find loopholes around it or ignore that it's there, that it's said, because Jesus is a good leader. He is a good king who's helping me learn how to serve him in righteousness and in holiness. And it requires repentance. So the Pharisees, they would hear things that Jesus would say, and so would many others. But if they weren't moved to repentance from his message by hearing his judgments, then they just weren't going to get it. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about fundamentally, why could a disciple value Jesus? And we looked back at how they listened and submitted to the teaching of John the Baptist. Do you remember what we know John the Baptist taught, what he preached? It was one word, repent. And then he says, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so because the disciples had a repentant attitude, they were able to understand and pursue and commit to his teaching. Let's look at the seed sown on rocky places. The seed sown on rocky places. What happened to the seed? Let's go back at verse 5 and 6. Jesus spends the most time describing the seed. I'm not sure if there's a significance to that, but it is worth noting, I think, that Jesus defines this seed with the longest explanation. So let's look at verse 5 and 6 again. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. So it's on rocky ground, right? So you kind of imagine there's a little bit of soil, but it's on just a lot of rocky, uh, rocky ground where it's really shallow and the dirt or the soil really is only on the surface and just below that is a lot of rocks or crags or things like that. So it couldn't really plant its roots into the soil. And so when the sun came up, it just ended up getting burned and dried up and it withered away. So what does that mean? Verse 20 and 21. 
The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So some people receive the word very quickly with very vibrant, very visible joy, very excited about things and enthusiastic, but they don't have any roots that are growing in their faith or their convictions. And so once temptation and affliction and persecution comes as a result of the word, they fall away. And so it's very short-lived, it's very bombastic, but only for a very temporary period of time. So what lessons can we learn from that? This is difficult. Um, Great enthusiasm and outward joy are attractive. It's very exciting and appealing, but it can be very deceiving. Um, I've had Bible studies with many people who are very excited about what we're doing. And some people I've studied with, they get baptized because they hear the truth, they're excited about it. One person in particular that I may have brought up in the past, um, it was someone in Alabama. Um, I worked with this person and we started studying and somehow, I, I can't remember if it was deliberately in the conversation or if it just kind of came up as we were talking and studying, but somehow baptism came up. And it really struck him what the Bible says about baptism. And so we talked about it more. We saw that the Bible teaches that baptism is for the remission of sins. He had been baptized in the past, and that's not what it was for. And so he became very excited and very convicted very quickly. And I remember trying to stop him and being like, I think you really need to think about this more and really invest more into reading about this and understanding it better. And I remember him saying, if you don't baptize me right now, I'm going to go find somebody to baptize me. And it's, I, I'm going to get baptized tonight. So I was like, oh, okay. I mean, and tried to ask him, so you understand what the Bible teaches and what this is all about here? And he's like, yes, 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 yes. So we go and he's baptized. And shortly after that, he starts talking to one of his close confidants, his very close friend. And his friend, his reaction is, Baptized for the remission of sins? What are you talking about? That's not what baptism is for. And so I see him again and he says, you know, Bryant, I wasn't baptized for the remission of my sins. I was baptized because I'd been saved before. It's like, okay, that's not what you confessed. That's not what we studied. That's not why you were convicted. And as we talked to his friend, it was very apparent that he, he wanted to maintain the beliefs that kept that friendship. And his friend, who he trusted a lot, very ardently, like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not acceptable. That's not what the Bible says. And just stopped seeing him. Stopped hearing from him. Didn't want to study it out. Didn't want to reason through it. Didn't think that there was some chance he may be misunderstanding and maybe not seeing things the right way. It's surprising how often that happens. And that can be very discouraging, and it can be easy to get lost in the initial enthusiasm to think, oh boy, this person is going to just be so devoted, this person is going to be so committed, but we're only seeing what's on the outside. What's more important than just quickly, rapidly, just excitedly receiving things is thinking it through, 
critically and maybe sometimes very slowly thinking about what the Bible says and really thinking through the consequences of truth as Jesus would say, counting the cost, right? So more important than being outwardly joyous is being patiently enduring with the truth. And I think this is important too. So is sunshine just some destructively bad thing for plants? So I mean, you look at the top of the board, right? The sun destroyed this plant. But I mean, sunshine is necessary. It's good. It gives life to plants. It gives them the nourishment and the vitamins that they need, that they can grow and thrive. But if a plant has no roots, sunshine becomes something that burns it and destroys it and dries it up. It takes what little eensy-weensy bit of nourishment it may have hidden inside, but without the roots storing nourishment and getting nourishment from the ground, what could be a good and necessary thing turns into a very destructive thing instead. What did the sunshine and the heat represent in his first explanation and him describing its meaning? It's temptation, trials, persecution because of the word. Those can either be good and helpful things that root our faith more, that motivate us more, that make us more patient, that deepen our faith and deepen our convictions, but only if we're really digging deep into our hearts, only when we're letting God's word dig in in uncomfortable places and we're willing to make sacrifices and suffer losses for the word and endure through difficulties even when we want to escape by methods we've used in the past to just be comfortable. The word of the kingdom challenges the endurance of our commitment. So enthusiasm and outward joy, again, may be attractive, but ultimately is deceiving. And so we need to be focused more on digging deeper roots in our faith, our knowledge, our applications, and our convictions. Let's look at the seed sown among the thorns. So what happened to this seed? Um, Look at verse 7. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. So very simple. Uh, This seed fell on ground where there were thorns, whether they were yet grown or not. They were there in the soil or above the soil already. And so the seed, it did grow. It may have had some roots, but it was sharing the soil with all of these other thorns, which then grew with it, choked it out, and then it couldn't bear any fruit as a result. And what does this mean? Look at verse 22. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I think this is generally understood to be something that is very easily deceptive and difficult um, because of how this is describing a person who may, by certain appearances, look like they're faithfully committed. But ultimately, the seed in their heart is being choked out. So some people, they they hear the word, and there may be some roots, but the goal isn't just roots. The goal isn't just the stem. The worries of the world and the seedfulness of, of wealth 
It chokes the word and it doesn't ultimately bear what is the goal? Fruit. Fruit to be shared. Fruit to be gained. And so it just stays at an immature place. What are lessons we can learn from this? I uh, know someone from Indiana, um, surprise, surprise, uh, who worked in um, corn harvesting. And what they had mentioned is with corn harvesting, there was a time where they didn't use, I think it's pesticides or whatever, like kills weeds before they grow, basically. And he mentioned that ragweed is a weed that grows with corn and it like towers over corn. So corn is already like, you know, like five or six feet tall when it's fully grown and ragweed grows like 10 feet tall. So it towers over it. It's, it's large. And he mentioned that ragweed, when it grows, it takes the nutrients that the corn needs. And so the rows of corn are still there. Like they still are growing in the midst of all of the ragweed. But the corn that's growing is rotten or it doesn't grow at all because there's just the nutrients are spread out too far on too many different plants now. And the weeds are just absorbing those healthy nutrients that the, the, uh, the corn crops actually need. They grow faster, but they also take the sunlight by towering over the corn. And then we'll talk about this in the moment, but you know, and then getting rid of those ragweed was apparently just incredibly difficult, really unpleasant work. And so obviously after a while they use pesticide and they just like stop that whole process. Um, but that's like having so many divided interests and ambitions and investments. You know, we have so many things that are, are captivating our mind and our attention. There's just no room left for the kind of thoughtful consideration that God's kingdom really needs. So this would be somebody who has so many different interests. It's just absorbing the energy it's absorbing the time. It's absorbing the thoughtfulness. And there's just so little left for the word that it may grow a little bit, but ultimately there's no fruitfulness that can come from that. And here's something that I think is very challenging about this. I think the mystery of this parable is, we'll, we'll get to this in a, in a minute, but it's not that we just kind of automatically presume, well, I'm the good soil. Think about it. Let's say you're in a situation where these things are in your life. There are thorns and weeds. This is going to be hard and painful work. For one, this isn't going to happen unless there's some kind of neglect in the first place, right? Well, if you're already used to neglecting the word in the heart, it's almost like it, it just traps you because if you're in this situation, first of all, the illustration is, is thorns, not weeds. Thorns, they cut your hands up. You wear gloves. Your gloves get stuck on the weeds. They, they still stick into your hand even through the glove. It's going to take time. It's going to be painful work. It's going to take a lot of focus and sacrifice. It's really just a matter of, is it worth it? Is it worth the work and the pain it takes to see, where are the thorns in my life? I need to get these things completely eradicated out of my heart. Because with thorns and weeds, if you just cut it above the surface, but it's still rooted underneath, it's going to grow right back with a vengeance. And so it's not just about cutting it where it's visible. It's about getting to the source and clearing it away so that what's supposed to be bearing fruit has the room to produce its crop. Seed sown on good soil. What happened to this seed? It's very simple. Um, at the end here. 
But in verse 8 he says, And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. You know, so the crop yielded varying degrees of fruit or crop or whatever, but they still yielded. And again, it may have been different, but they still similarly were all in their own ways yielding crop. So this seed, it fell on the good soil and it yielded a crop of varied amounts. What does that mean? Um, Let's look at verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So some hear the, the word and just very simply they understand it. And they bear fruit of varying degrees, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And I think it's important to understand that understanding it is in contrast to the other soils. And what it really means to understand the word is in opposition to what we've already seen with what hinders understanding in the other parables. So the first lesson is this soil is free from the issues of the others. And I don't think that's done by just accident, right? I mean, we all need to start from a position of repenting for the lives we've lived against God. And so this isn't a soil that just kind of is magically all of a sudden in a good condition. It started somewhere else. But as a result of conviction and repentance, here's where it can be. And so this soil is deliberately free by work, by faith, from the issues that Jesus teaches are in the other soils. I think another thing is this soil is diligently kept. You know, if anybody here has experience with gardening, you know, to my understanding, from from my experience, what little it is, gardens are not just kept by passive view. You don't just watch things happen and then kind of hope that it's all going to work out. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with the crop, with the seed, with the, the stem, just really making sure everything's going the way it should go. And so this soil isn't just accidentally or magically kept. It's, it's diligently kept because of understanding that this is a valuable seed with a very valuable fruit. And if I don't keep this soil then I'm going to be endangering the value of the fruit that's really the reason why this is planted in the first place. And so people who value God's goals will value the work and the faith, the effort it takes to keep their heart, to be students of their own heart. And I want to conclude with with this point, and this, this does relate again to being students of our own heart. Jesus has taught some famous lessons that I think we're all generally aware of. And he says, hey, you know, don't just look at the speck in your brother's eye. Look at the plank that is first in your eye. Then you will see clearly. He also said that instead of choosing the first place, you should choose the last place and then you'll be exalted. I think it's easy to think about that in a relational sense. You know, like, oh, I need to think about that with my neighbor or my friends or my colleagues or I need to choose the last place in a line that I'm in. While that may be true, I think the first thing we need to learn to do is do that with Jesus' teaching. That first, we need to not presume things about where we are in the parable, like, oh, I'm clearly the good soil. Or just letting it just vroom, go right over our heads and, well, that's nice for whoever that's for. But using what Jesus teaches to equip us to have more understanding of what we need to be watching out for within ourselves. 
And so the plank with the teaching needs to be in our own eye. Choosing the last place is something we need to do with the teaching. When Jesus teaches in parables, and he doesn't use pronouns like you and your, what he's doing is he's inviting a humble heart to put themselves by their own choosing into the parable and find a place that will yield the fruitful outcome of applications made from a good heart. So what soil are you? Where will you choose to put yourself? And what will you choose to do with Jesus' teaching? The invitation is made by Jesus himself, and the invitation is still made today. There's always more to be gained from reflecting on these parables than what we've gained in the past. So I leave that to you and commend that to you. And if you're here and there is anything that needs to be brought before the church in relation to um, confession of sin or a desire uh, to, to seek encouragement from God's people, we do reserve this time specifically for those needs as we stand and sing the invitation song.